Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 349 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I sat down and chatted with author and photographer Amy Gulick. Amy's well known for her conservation photography in the Pacific Northwest, most notably her work to preserve and expand salmon habitat through her books. I had a wonderful time discussing these efforts with Amy, and I think there's something for everyone this week, so stay tuned. Before we get to the show, I want to thank our latest Patreon supporters, Lee Gerstein, Suzanne Lopez, and Fiona McLean. If you value this podcast, I would be humbled if you supported the podcast financially through Patreon. Not only does Patreon put food on my table for my family, it is also how you signal to me that I'm doing something that you value. We operate on the value for value model here on the podcast, and I think if you value something, you should pay for it. Whether that be $5 a month, $10 a month, it's totally up to you. Anything more than zero is fair in my book. Thank you to the 200 plus kind and generous souls who already do support the show. You are really appreciated. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Amy Gulick. All right, Amy Gulick, it's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, it's great to be here. Awesome, fantastic. I feel like you've been recommended by so many different people over the years, and it's great to finally have you here. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So for people that aren't familiar with you and your photography, would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, I'm a photographer, I'm a writer, I'm an author, I'm a speaker, kind of all of those things. Um, In general, I tend to use my photography uh, to help people understand uh, the importance of nature um, to humanity and really all life on earth. That is very succinct. (laughs) Where do you live? (laughs) You know, tell us a little bit more, like what makes, what makes Amy Gulick tick? Like, are you uh, super into wildlife? Are you super into landscapes? Like, tell us a little bit more. You know, I I think what I'm super into is using photography as a tool um, to tell stories uh, about uh, nature. uh, And and nature is a very big, broad, general word, right? But um, to me, it encompasses everything. Again, it's I think when I think of the word nature, I think of all life on Earth. Because if we can't understand uh, why all life on Earth is important, um, not only for our own sake, but, you know, for the Earth's sake, then I just think we're missing a big part of what it means to be human and a big part of what it means to be a part of this world. So to me, photography is a tool. You know, so when you say, oh, are you into landscapes or are you into wildlife? It's like, yes, <laughs> you know, it, it's all of those things. Um, but I'm using my images to, again, uh, engage people, you know, draw them in, uh, tell them a story and, and, and really just get them to pay attention and get them to care. I love it. And where do you live and anything else you want to share about you from a more personal perspective? Uh, yeah, sure. I live in Washington state on on an island, uh, called Whidbey Island. It's North of Seattle. And, um, uh, I'm in, I, I, I always like to think of, again, I, I, I'm big into thinking big picture. So it's like, all right, where's Whidbey Island? Well, it's this little dot in kind of the Southern part <laughs> of what is called the Salish Sea. <laughs> um, and the Salish Sea is this larger body of water that encompasses, uh, two countries, um, uh, United States, uh, through Washington State's Puget Sound, and then up into, uh, British Columbia as well. 
Gotcha. Well, that must be an incredible location for someone who is into using photography to tell stories about nature or other things. It is. It is. I mean, we're, we're part of um, the largest coastal temperate rainforest in the world, uh, which extends uh, really com- like kind of south central Alaska all the way down into southeast Alaska, coastal British Columbia, uh, Washington, Oregon, and then Northern California, where the redwood forests are. Um, that at one time was all one large connected ecosystem. Um, it has since been fragmented um, uh, pretty heavily, uh, particularly outside of Alaska. Um, so I live, I live in that fragmented part, uh, and I'm, I'm very aware of that, <laughs> you know, every day. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I. Um, uh, my first book is all about the part that is less fragmented, uh, which is up in southeast Alaska. I would love to hear a little bit more about how you actually got into photography to to begin with. Yeah, so um, when I was a kid, uh, before I could read or write, uh, I think I was just doing what all human beings have done since the dawn of human being time, and that's tell stories. Um, I, I think stories are... It, it's a it's a very human trait, and it's how we have always made sense of the world around us. Um, it's how we've figured out kind of how to be a part of the world and move in this world and survive in this world. Um, and it and it's a way that we can relate to each other um, and 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 to other living things other than human beings. Um, so stories. Uh, Again, they are uniquely human, um, and so when before I could read or write, I, of course I was just doing what humans have always done. I, I really, really like to tell stories. <laughs> like I excelled at show and tell in kindergarten. I think that was my favorite, and still is really. I mean, that's you know what are photographers doing now? I mean, that's pretty much what we're doing. You know, and, and I just throw writing in there too. So I, I not only get to show, but I get to tell as well. <laughs> anyway, so storytelling uh, just took hold naturally, I think, like it does for most human beings. Um, But it just never left me either. And so as I grew a little bit older, and I started to learn how to read and write, and you know, you're but you're still pretty young, you know, I was, I was telling stories, well, now I could kind of write some stories. And now I could draw things that would illustrate the stories. And when I was about eight or nine, I think, um, my family got, uh, I'm laughing at this now, because it was called a pocket camera. And it was the Kodak pocket camera. And it was, it was revolutionary because it really did fit in your pocket. Um, you know, so it was pre smartphone for sure. <laughs> uh, but it did, it fit in your pocket. It was kind of like a, I don't know, it was like a long deck of cards and about that thick too, but it, very lightweight. And again, I was eight or nine years old. I think my family got one and my dad you know, put it in my hands and kind of showed me what it did. And I was just like blown away. It's like, wow, okay, I don't have to draw my stories anymore. This is now my tool of choice to illustrate my stories. And so at that young age, I was just kind of running around and photographing whatever was in my world at that age. Um, And then getting the photos back because you had to wait (laughs) and get them developed from the drugstore or the camera store. And I just loved it. There was just something about uh, you know, and it, this is, sounds clo- so cliche, but capturing a moment, you know, you're freezing a moment in time and that moment was never going to happen again. And I just, there was just something about it that really clicked with me. And it's like, all right, what, what was going on in this moment? What got my attention where I felt like I needed to 
press the shutter and capture this moment. So let's let's tell a story about this moment. So I think uh, that's how photography started for me. Um, and I just never, ever grew out of that passion <laughs> of, again, capturing, freezing a moment in time, um, and then trying to help people understand why that, why I thought that moment was important, you know, enough to, to focus in on it and make an image. Um, now let's, let's talk about that. So that's, that's basically how it started yeah, and it's just never stopped. <laughs> I, I love the use of the term capture a moment. It's something that I use a lot in my own writing and the way I describe photography to others. And it's interesting because I think with the digital age and with the revolutionary tools that have become available to us through Photoshop and Lightroom and other tools, you know, AI, for example, I feel like that kind of magic about capturing moment has kind of taken, I don't know, taken the backseat to, to people creating more imaginative um, things from their imagination or hyper-realizing uh, images that, you know, maybe didn't exist. And I'm curious if if that whole capturing the moment thing has been a part of why you've gone the direction you have in the types of images that you create. Yeah. And I, you know, it just, I think, uh, just a comment to, to your point, you know, that you just made, I, I don't think, I don't think capturing the moment has lost its, its, uh, power. Um, I think what's happened over time is, there are so many moments that people are capturing, right? More and more people are out there with uh, an iPhone, you know, and, and capturing moments like every single second of every single day. I can't remember the statistic, but it, it's, it will blow your mind as like how many images are being like, say, uploaded to whatever, like every single day you know, and then multiply that by 365 days a year. And it's like, it's more images that have ever been created from the time uh, photography was even invented, you know, in the 1800s. And, and I think in a way, I think that's great. I, I love that more people have this tool in their hand um, and are capturing moments that maybe some of us or the world would never see otherwise. Um, and I think that tool is super powerful uh, in many ways. But but sometimes I, I think what I'm seeing a lot of is there's just so many, so many excellent photos out there in the world now of kind of the same moments, uh, similar moments. And I think what happens, it just I think it's just normal, right? Like kind of human brain thing. Like if we get oversaturated with kind of certain subjects or certain topics, then then they kind of become commonplace. Like, you know, if you've never, ever seen a tiger in the wild, you still feel like you've seen a tiger, right? Because you've seen so many outstanding images of whether it's a tiger or a lion or an elephant. And, and again, I think when we get oversaturated with certain things, it's just, we, uh, I don't know if we take it for granted or suddenly it kind of, it takes a lot more, I think, for an image to then get our attention. Um, and be, and just mm -hmm. again, because we're so saturated and that's, I, I'm not passing judgment. I'm not saying if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it makes like my job and the role of other photographers, I think it makes it way more challenging. Um, it's no longer enough to go out there and make a stunning image of a landscape or a wildlife species. Um, I think we have to do a lot more uh, than that. It, if 
um, if in my case, you know, you're trying to use these images again as a tool to draw people in, engage them in a, in a, in a larger story uh, and get them to understand why these things are important. Um, but it's, I'm always up for a challenge, so that's <laughs> it, it's okay. But it's just um, it's harder for sure. Yeah, and I'm sure you've seen it evolve a bit over your career. I know your first book was, gosh, it's you know tw like what almost 15 years old now or whatever. So, you know, it's uh, you know probably back in the early to 2010s, it was probably a lot easier to get recognition and notoriety in this field with just capturing some fantastic photographs. And now, like you said, that's not quite enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know, here's, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause uh, yeah. So my first book is called Salmon in the Trees. And again, it's about um, Southeast Alaska, which is the last remaining uh, intact uh, part of that, the greater North American coastal temperate rainforest. And you know, it's amazing. Yeah, so that book, I started working on that book in 2007. It was published in 2010. I am still giving presentations on it. I'm still, every week there's an inquiry about it. And I'd say it has very little to do with the photographs and everything to do with the story. And again, the photographs mm. are there to illustrate this story. And this is kind of one of those timeless stories in that it talks about this really awesome uh, unexpected ecological connection that still exists in what's called the Tongass National Forest, again, in southeast Alaska. So Salmon in the Trees, um, the book's title, everybody thinks, oh, that's just a metaphor, right? It's, it's like fairies in the wind or something like that. And no, it's literal. There are really, really salmon in the trees. And the way this works, and I'll give you the, the abbreviated version. So Pacific salmon, they are born in freshwater streams and rivers. They head out to the oceans to mature and grow big, and then they come back. They migrate back to the very streams, those freshwater streams where they were born, um, to spawn the next generation, and then they die. That is the life cycle of Pacific salmon. So right there, I mean, just that life cycle is, it's, it's what I call the hero's journey. I mean, they are just on a mission, and they're sacrificing their lives so that the next generation can live. It's pretty awesome right there. And it's a metaphor for our own lives, really. Um, you, you can't not understand salmon and not start questioning your own existence and your own journey on this planet. And what am I doing? And what am I leaving behind? And, you know, that's, you know, why are we here? You know, kind of thing. Salmon definitely do that. Anyway, so in the Tongass National Forest, there's 5,000 spawning streams throughout a 17 million acre forest, which is about the size of the state of West Virginia. 5,000 spawning streams. Millions of wild salmon are coming back in kind of late summer-ish, uh, kind of all at the same time. Um, that part of the world has some of the highest densities of both brown and black bears. Um, so all those bears are coming down. They're coming down to the streams. They're grabbing salmon, and they're taking them back into the forest to eat because... Uh, Bears aren't social. They don't want to be around each other. Um, and other bears are going to steal other bears' food. So one bear, this has been quantified by science, one bear can carry 40 fish from one of those streams in just eight hours. So 5,000 spawning streams, millions of salmon, highest densities of brown and black bears in the world. So many salmon carcasses end up on that forest floor. 
And over time, all the nutrients from the bodies of that, those, all those salmon decompose into the forest floor, into the soil, and the trees absorb them through their roots. Now, here's the kicker. This is the part. This is the aha moment. This is when the light bulb goes on for everybody, and this is what sticks in everybody's head. So scientists have actually traced a particular form of marine nitrogen. It's called nitrogen-15. Um, in trees, and it only comes from the ocean, you know, so how did this ridiculously high concentrations of ocean nitrogen get inside these trees? Um, it, they came in the bodies of salmon, they de delivered to the forest floor by bears, and then absorbed through the roots of trees. So they're actually salmon in the trees. And it's the coolest thing, I think, that I've ever heard. And I've been talking about this now for 13 years, and every single time I tell the story, I get goosebumps. It's just... And, and to watch other people learn about this, and, and, and let me just say from a photographic standpoint, it's really difficult to show this in photographs. Really, really difficult because right. you, can't see, you can't see nitrogen, right? You can't see inside a tree. And even if you could, you wouldn't see nitrogen um, or nitrogen 15 and you wouldn't see salmon. Uh, so I had to make a series of photographs, you know, that, that helped to uh, explain that. But it's, again, it's the story, it's the words that accompany those photographs that help people understand that just awesome connection. And once you understand that awesome connection, you quickly start making other connections. It's like, oh, well, huh, all right. So if there's salmon in the trees, and this is how it all happens, what happens if we overfish salmon? What happens if those salmon aren't coming into the forest? Um, what happens if there, if, if there aren't enough bears? You know, suddenly bear populations drop for whatever reasons. Maybe we're overhunting or whatever it is. Their bears don't have what they need. Um, what happens to the salmon if we're cutting down all those trees, you know, that are shading their spawning streams and, and helping them? Um, so when you start asking yourself all these questions and you understand how it is that there are salmon in trees, you understand what this ecosystem is without me ever even having to say the word ecosystem and having to get all kind of scientifically wonky about it. Um, that's the beauty of this. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the photographs, the photographs are the, the powerful visual component of an already very compelling story that really very few people know about. But once they do learn, it's just like, you'll never forget that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, wow, cool. There are salmon in the trees. So you can well, tell I get very you can tell I get very excited about this topic. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's awesome. I mean, I I would love for you to maybe even don't know the answer, but what does happen if all of those things become true? Like, there's no bears, there's no salmon, there's no trees shading their spawning grounds. Like, what is the what is the impact of that? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, you get a degraded ecosystem or you get a broken ecosystem, which is really what, what we have now down here where I live uh, in Washington state in that portion of that original coastal temperate rainforest. We have destroyed salmon habitat uh, to the point where we have, we have only 10% of our historical salmon abundance. And it only took us like 100 years to do that maybe even less than 100 years. So, uh, and, and granted, we, we are trying now, you know, to recover some of that, you know, but are we ever going to get it all back? I, uh, you know, it, it's really hard to bring something back that people don't even know that they've lost and don't even value, you know, anymore. And so again, that's why I'm always out there trying to tell these amazing, you know, stories that get people excited about, wow, I, I never knew that. And 
oh, wow, okay, yeah, maybe we, maybe we need to pay attention and maybe we need to not overfish and maybe we need to take care of the forest and let's not clear cut and, you know, like all of these things. And, it's, and, if, and if I do my job and I do it in a way that, again, gets people to care and, that, and that's, that's the biggest uh, challenge, really, and it's always my goal. It's like, how do I get people to care in a way that they're going to want to actually do something because there's a lot of doom and gloom, you know, out in the world, particularly when it comes to uh, the environment, um, all life sustaining ecosystems all around the planet. Um, I think we are all becoming more and more aware of that. And it's, it's overwhelming and it can easily, when we're too overwhelmed, we just shut down. You're like, this is bigger than me. This is bigger than all of us. I can't do anything. So I'm just going to go to the store and get groceries because I, don't have any food in the house or whatever. You know, I'm going to go do, I'm going to go do what I can do of, of whatever I need to do kind of thing. So I, there's a, again, there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. And I, I made a decision early on in my career. It's like, you know, I could do that. I could definitely be out there showing a lot of destructive photos and there's nothing wrong with that. I, we need to see, we definitely need to see the problems um, but a lot of people stop there. They just show us the problems and they just stop. Um, they don't really show us the beauty and the wonder and the magnificence uh, of it all. And I think when we do that, then that's when you engage people in a positive way. And you um, then, again, tell them these amazing stories, show them amazing photos, then maybe show them, OK, here are the problems, um, but here are also the solutions and here's what we can do. So I'm, in addition to doing my own work um, with books, I'm always, it's super important for me. I have to be partnering um, with, with uh, it's usually conservation groups, but a lot of times it's government agencies too, who are actually working on improving forest health, improving salmon health, because I don't do that work. I'm not out there actually restoring the forests or bringing salmon back or trying to remove dams, you know, that are blocking salmon passage. It's like, I, I can't do that stuff. Um, but if I'm partnering with the groups and the government agencies that are doing that, then, then, you know, I get to tell that message to a much broader audience, reach more people uh, and, and get them involved and then say, oh, and by the way, here are the groups, here are the government agencies that are actually working on this stuff, and, and here's how you can help. Because um, I always say, you know, and a lot of, a lot of younger photographers, when they, when they contact me and they say, hey, I want to do what you're doing, and, and, and you know, how do I do it? <laughs> and, and it's a good question. Um, but I always kind of start out uh, by maybe kind of tamping down, you know, everybody's enthusiasm just a little bit, and maybe tamping down some egos, and, and I just say, you know what, it... My photographs by themselves, and really my stories by themselves, probably aren't going to save anything. Um, but again, my photographs and my stories partnering with the groups that are always going to be there on the ground doing the actual work, now my images and stories actually have a chance of making a difference. Um, so I'm always trying to get people to think about, you know, partnering, 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 um, because you, you, mm. you can't, it's hard to have that staying power. Um, without that. And again, I, um, Salmon in the Trees is now in its third printing. I just picked up the third printing uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, so again, it's that book, that story um, has staying power, but only because, um, granted the story, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable story, first of all, but it's, it's gotten out with um, so many partners um, in Alaska, in the lower 48, people working on salmon uh, recovery uh, down here, 
um, and uh, uh, government agencies in Alaska, uh, the U.S. Forest Service, you know, picked this book up and, and were they were making all new hires read it. <laughs> so it it's stuff like that. But again, partner, partner, partner. Um, if if what you're trying to do with your photos is is make a difference um, for the subjects that that you love and that you're photographing. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. What I've found is that uh, when it comes to these types of issues, it becomes really difficult to get people to care until it somehow becomes personal. And oftentimes the approach of storytellers or photographers or lawmakers or policy advocates is they almost have the opposite effect. You know, it's like, oh, so if I do this, you're going to take away my jobs and you're going to take away, you know, my ability to buy paper bags or whatever in the grocery store, you know, like people, they think about like the negative impacts of action on these issues. And I'm curious, how do we flip that script in our stories to have it have a little bit more personal impact so that people can actually care? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. And I, um, I have an answer for that. (laughs) So yeah, I think what you were just describing is the word sacrifice, right? And, and so whenever, Right. Whenever we say, "Okay, we're going to clean up this river or we're going to remove that dam or uh, whatever it is, we're going to stop clear cutting forests. Um, Right. People start immediately. They're like, "Okay, wait a minute. You know, that's going to I I now have to give something up, you know, which is kind of the uh, one of the definitions for the word sacrifice. And as a good friend of mine, uh, a writer, Carl Safina, this is not original. This is not an Amy Gulick original, but Carl Safina, who contributed an essay uh, to the book, Salmon in the Trees, he eloquently eloquently writes about this topic. And, and how I like how he puts it because he says, okay, wait a minute. So what you're telling me is you feel like you have to sacrifice something so that we can actually improve the health of the world in which we live. But let's look at that word sacrifice. It's like, aren't we already sacrificing you know, because what we're doing, our behavior is degrading the health of the world in which we all live. So we're already sacrificing. We're already sacrificing clean air, clean water, healthy food, our children and grandchildren's future. You know, so let's let's flip that word and that concept of sacrifice. Let's flip it around. It's like our current behavior, we are already sacrificing, you know, our health. And, and it's just not painted that way because... There are forces uh, out there who don't want us to think in those terms. But that's what I try and get people to understand. It's like we're already sacrificing. We're already living in a degraded world. So trying to actually improve our world that we live in, it's like we just, yeah, maybe we need to make some changes in our life. But I don't view those as sacrifices. Yeah. No, I'm the same way. I'm just playing devil's advocate a little bit. But uh you know, oh sure, no sure. It's a very sure. common, it's a very common thought. People, of course, human nature. What's in it for me? How's this going to affect me? I mean, that's just kind of how, it's kind of how we think, and it's how we, it's how we've survived really as long as we have. But I'm always just trying to kind of turn that word around a little bit. And and once you do, it's it's just a it's just a way of thinking. And once people kind of start analyzing sacrifice in a different way, they're like, oh, okay, all right, yeah. Uh, all right, I don't get a paper bag. No big deal. <laughs> right. Well, obviously, your your work is very centered around conservation issues. I'm curious, like, how did you even get interested in this type of photography, this type of work to begin with? 
Oh, you know, I kind of don't think I had a choice. I, you know, we're all kind of born with a personality, right? And I was just born with an activist personality. Um, it's just how I came out. Uh, from a very young age, if I felt like there was something, an injustice in the world, and it could have been as, you know, something as simple as, hey, you know, she got a bigger donut than I did <laughs> or something like that. If I just <laughs> thought something wasn't, I, well, you know, I mean, what what's fair when you're five? You know? <laughs> but if there was something, an injustice, you know, uh, something wasn't fair, um, I just, I would speak out about it. I would do something about it. I wasn't somebody who would just go, oh, I don't like that but I'll just move on. Um, I wrote my first letter to the editor at age nine. <laughs> so, and it was something stupid, right? I mean, now I look back on it. I think it had to do with a TV show or something like that. And I wrote it to like the TV guide, but still I wrote it and, and at nine, right? And I sent it in and they published it. And I just remember going, wow, okay, that's the power of the press. And it's the power of us exercising our First Amendment rights, which I didn't know what the First Amendment was at that age, but it didn't matter. I mean, human beings, we understand fairness. I mean, it is a core tenet of being human. We, we know when something is not fair, right? And some of us do things about it and some don't, and that's fine. But I'm just one of those people who, who does. Um, so I think, so for me, actually, when I was starting out in photography, because I loved being outdoors and because that's where I met my best and it, in a forest, in the ocean, a desert, hiking, swimming, camping, whatever. I just loved being outdoors ever since I was a little kid. And that's never gone away. So my photography started out being, you know, outdoor oriented, kind of like, kind of more like maybe outdoor recreation, um, like, oh, canoeing trips or camping trips or hiking or, you know, and illustrating and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, and because I've always loved animals since I was a little kid too, uh, natural history. So photographing wildlife if I could and writing about the natural history of certain species. Um, so that was really the beginning of, of my storytelling, professional storytelling and, you know, publishing my work. And over time, the more time you spend outdoors and the older you get, um, you really start seeing what a lot of people are not seeing. And so I was starting to see, you know, clear-cut logging and destruction of salmon streams and whatever it was. I was kind of seeing the negative stuff that was going on in this beloved, you know, outdoor world. And because I have an activist personality, I'm like, okay, I... I think what I can do with the tools and the skills that I have is at least I can make people aware of what's going on. And you know what I found, and I and I this touches me every single time. What I found was there are a lot of people who maybe are never going to go to say remote Alaska, like the Arctic refuge or something like that, but it doesn't mean they don't care about it. But they can't care if they don't know what's going on. So I started going to these more remote places, um, the Arctic Refuge uh, really was kind of my, f really kind of first big story, I think, um, that I covered. And I would come back and I would give speaking presentations kind of all over the country because it was such a hot issue. It still is, you know, decades later and probably always will be. And what I found was, again, it didn't really matter where I went. And like oh, little old ladies had come up to me and they're like, you know, I'm never going to go there. I don't want to go there, but I'll be 
damned if they're going to drill there. <laughs> you know, like people really cared. <laughs> people really cared uh, about this. There was something that struck a, a chord and struck a nerve with people, and they really wanted to help and they really wanted to do something. But I, I think again, going back to storytelling and how do we engage people. I was making them fall in love with the place. It was like, here's, you know, you've been told that this is a barren wasteland and that there's nothing there. And, and because of that, it's okay to drill it, you know, for oil or whatever it is we're going to do to this place. And, and I was showing them otherwise. It's like, this is a living, breathing, unbelievable ecosystem. And here's what lives there. And here's the people who rely on that ecosystem staying intact. Um, so I was helping them fall in love with the place, really. And and then, you know, once you've got them and they care, um, then it's like, oh, and by the way, here's the threat. And I, you don't have to even go into great detail about what the threat is because they've already, they care and they love the place and they're like, what? Now we're going to ruin? We're going to ruin this place? I don't think so. I think that's how my my work started taking on more of a conservation uh, storytelling angle, uh, uh, if you will. And and I, I want to make it clear, like, because I know your audience, you know, encompasses uh, photographers who, who, who have no interest in using their images in this way. And that's okay. You know, I, I don't want everybody to walk away from this going, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm not using my images in those ways. Like, is there something wrong with me? It's like, no. I mean, anything that gets people outdoors to me, and if, it, and if photography is your entry point, and that's what you love to do, and that's, you know, your connection to the natural world, get out there and do it. And, you know, don't, don't worry about how you use your images um, after that. If you want them on your wall because mm -hmm. it was a special place and that's the extent of it, or you share them on social media, that's great. Um, anything to me that gets people outside and, um, and, just, and, and just aware, <laughs> you know, aware that we need what's going on outside our homes uh, to be healthy. And, and again, usually that's, that's a great entry point. I, I love that. And I love you said that, that some people might, might not want to use their photography in that way. And, you know, as I'm listening to this discussion, I'm thinking about some of the local nonprofits that I could, that I could work with. I could volunteer. I could say, Hey, I know how to use a camera. What stories do you need told? You know, I know how to write. I'm a pretty good writer. I'm a pretty good photographer. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if we have a passion for photography and storytelling and, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be tied with any ambitious goals of, you know, becoming the world's next amazing conservation photographer. It could just be like wanting to further a certain cause. I think I think it's yep. OK to start small, start local and, you know, give it the amount of time you feel is important to you. Yeah. And that that's a super important point is is not only start local, but maybe just stay local because we need we need eyes and ears and storytellers everywhere. We need them all over the world. But who better, really, you know, than to tell the story of where you live than you? Um, you know, sometimes I think we you know, we look at, you know, a handful of like, say, you know, like, say, the top you know National Geographic natural history photographers that are traveling all over the world doing this and we kind of think, oh, I have to be like them. I have to be doing that. And it's like, no, <laughs> no, you know, or maybe do what they do, but do it, do it where you live. That's what we need more of. Uh, you know, we, we, we don't need people yeah. like traipsing all over the place, um, not to degrade anybody's work that, that that's what they're doing. But it's like, we need, we need everybody's local story being told because, because it's all connected, right? Like if, if your backyard is degraded, it's going to, 
eventually probably mine will get degraded or, you know, it's just, we, we need everybody taking care of, of, of where they live. And, and photography can play a huge role in that. Um, I've actually, I've taught some conservation photography workshops and, and, you know, trying to get participants to think that way and think local. And it's, it's just, it's really exciting to see what, what participants come away with. They're all of a sudden the light bulb goes on. It's like, oh, you mean I don't have to go halfway around the world and, and photograph koala bears or whatever. It's just like, no, no, like what's in your backyard? And, and that people, that people where you live aren't even aware of. I mean, you know, how many people really, really know the ecosystem that they live in? I, I'd say very few in today's world. So yeah, no, it's that definitely, right. you know, focus local, stay local. Love it. Well, I understand that uh, you're a founding fellow of the International League of Conservation Photographers. I was wondering if you can tell us what that organization is and why you decided to help found it. Yeah. So let's see. We were founded in 2005 um, by a very visionary uh, photographer, uh, Christina Mittermeier. And at the time, uh, we had a meeting in uh, Anchorage, uh, Alaska, and it was in conjunction with the World Wilderness Congress. And I think it was the eighth World Wilderness Congress, which I believe... I think those happen every four years, um, and they're always at a different part uh, in the world. And they're they're a gathering of um, scientists, you know, nonprofit organizations, government agencies, uh, you know, thinkers, writers, artists, uh, definitely photographers, you know, coming from all over the world to kind of address, you know, uh, you know, global ecosystem issues and 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 what's going on and what needs attention and. And and it's a it's a it's a really unique gathering and it's exciting to see what always comes out of it because all these resolutions come out of people coming together and meeting. It's like, all right, you know, here's you know, polar ice caps are melting. You know, what can we as this, you know, group, you know, what can we do? And it's a lot of it's again calling attention to things, uh passing resolutions, uh getting governments to actually take action on uh these things and getting governments to come together, you know, and cooperate. Um so anyway, in 2005, it was held in Anchorage, Alaska. Christina um, contacted uh, a lot of um, kind of leading photographers that were, this is exactly what they were doing. They were using their work to call attention to uh, global issues uh, concerning uh, the health of uh, ecosystems worldwide. And um, so I think at the end of that, uh, conference and that meeting with just the photographers, I believe it was probably 40, maybe 40-ish, 40 or 50 of us that came together and founded this organization, I, I want to say, as, as the founding fellows. But again, it was Christina who who put it all together. Um, she definitely gets the credit because that was no easy feat, <laughs> you know, to gather all those people that are <laughs> scattered, scattered all over the world. Uh, no, she was just awesome uh, in doing that. And we become... Um, I, I, uh, a fellowship really. Um, and because as you know, and as your audience knows out there, photography is a very, it's a, it, it tends to be a very solitary endeavor. And I think, but that's why those of us who do it love it. You know, I, we, we like being out, like we love being out in nature by ourselves and 
discovering and creating and whatever it is that we're doing. But if you're really trying to, again, make a difference, you know, use your images in a way that's going to, you know, help protect or save or call attention, raise awareness about the very things that you love you know, that are, and you're out there photographing with, you can't work alone anymore. Um, and, you know, and I already spoke to that. You've got to be out there partnering. So, so bringing photographers together in this, in this uh, the International League of Conservation Photographers was a way that we could all just uh, meet each other, talk to each other, stay in touch. And that's why I like this, this term fellowship, bounce ideas off of each other. Um, uh, you know, if, if somebody needs a contact in, in a country or another part of the world they're not familiar with, there's going to be somebody in that fellowship um, that is that knows somebody. So it's it's just a way it's a way to network and communicate. And then as an organization over the years, we we have partnered with um, nonprofit organizations and government agencies and help them illustrate, um, bring like global attention to whatever the issues is that they're working on. Um, so it's been a, a wonderful group to be a part of. And I've um, I've made just lasting friendships and again, just contacts and being able to network and just call on anybody, you know, in this group at any time and just kind of bounce an idea off or, you know, ask for some help. Um, and it's a very, very supportive uh, group. Yeah, I think the importance of collaboration nowadays is more important than ever. I feel like if you don't, if you're not collaborating with someone to to do something, you're definitely missing out on an awesome opportunity. But also, I think it's the the best way to to get something off the ground. Oh yes, yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, I, again, as much as photography is a solitary endeavor, and I think again we like that, like we enjoy that. When I ha when I do come together and collaborate, it's like. Oh my gosh. Like I there's no way I could have gotten my book in the hands of every senator and every congressperson in Washington DC. No way could I ever do that, but the groups I partner with do. <laughs> and and again, that's what I'm always <laughs> trying to Yeah, I mean, right? Like that's the power of 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 these partnerships. Um and, you know, th th speaking to that, so one of my mentors early on um was the late uh, Gary Brash, um who was definitely using his work um, and getting it in front of uh, policymakers and government officials and, um, you know, not just getting it out there and, hey, this is a pretty picture, right? And again, nothing wrong with that. But that's, I really admired Gary because to me, he was really one of those that was, he'd go beyond, let's say, just getting an, a magazine article published in a magazine with a shelf life of a month, you know, and then it's gone, like poof. He was he was in it for the long haul and always had his work out there. And I, I really admired that. And at a photography conference, and I was young and kind of just getting into this, and I approached him, and uh, it's kind of hard to approach your heroes sometimes, <laughs> you know, because it's a little intimidating, but he was so welcoming and, and so kind. And I, I just said, you know what, Gary, what, what can we do as photographers with our work? Like, what's the most effective way that we can try and, you know, impact conservation work, you know, for, for nature and all life on earth. And, and what he said is I took it to heart and I've never forgotten this. He said, the single most important thing we can do is get our images in front of decision makers, the people who are actually making the decisions mm -hmm. on salmon recovery or uh, forest practices or, uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is we're trying, you know, climate change initiatives, whatever, get it, get those images in front of decision makers, because most of the time, 
they're, you know, government officials, some of them are pretty knowledgeable maybe about these things, but I venture to say a lot of them are not. Doesn't mean they don't care. They're just not aware. It's not on their radar. And if we're not getting our images in front of them, it's like, guess who is? <laughs> you know, the people, maybe, maybe it's our adversaries, you know, the people who are wanting to destroy forests and destroy salmon habitat and, and keep emitting fossil fuels into the atmosphere. I mean, you can bet that they've got their attention, but, you know, how do... How do we do it? Um, anyway, I really took that to heart. And, and that, again, it goes back to partnering. It's like, you know, my books have, uh, they get into the hands of senators and congresspeople and local officials and U.S. Forest Service officials. And they get into their hands, not through me, but through my partners. Um, and that, and again, I think, I think that's why that my, my two books um, have had such staying power is that, again, they just, is those partnerships and they're getting in front of the people who really, really need to see them. Well, on your, on your website, you have a fun quote that I think it creates some interesting conversation. It says, quote, I'm often asked if I'm a photographer or a writer. I'm a storyteller and pictures and words are my tools, end quote. What makes for a good story and what attracts you to them? Oh wow, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, that that's a great question. I I I think I think a great story, you know, for one person maybe isn't a great story, or you know, kind of hard to say. You know, people, you know, I know people who only read fiction, right? Because it's stuff. It, it's oh, this character, and it was you know, it's made up, but it's oh, it's such an engaging story, or. Or people who don't read much fiction, um, but they're they're talk they're still kind of talking about oh you know there's this person that did this and and then they discovered this and uh, this happened and, and that kind of stuff. So um, what I have found, and it's taken me a long time to figure this out, but I think personally, whether we know it or not, I think the most compelling stories, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, are all about people. And so if you're a nature photographer and you're focusing on wildlife or, um, you know, the ocean or a, a certain landscape or something like that, it's like there aren't a whole lot of people you know, involved in, or at least we don't think that there are, right? But what I found is it's like, tell your story of the plight of polar bears or salmon or forests or whatever it is that your story is focusing on. Tell it through people. Tell it through um, a biologist who's studying you know, bears or who's studying salmon and their, what's their life story? How did they get involved in, in, in their work? Um, um, tell it through, like in my case, you know, with salmon, it's like tell the salmon story through indigenous people and their cultures who have their entire culture has been built for thousands, tens of thousands of years on salmon, on this fish. Why is that fish important to them and who they are and their identity? Tell it through commercial fishermen, you know, who catch and sell fish for their livelihood. Tell it through people. And the reason I think why that's so compelling is we are people. <laughs> and um, there's just something where we're very, we're drawn in by other people's stories. Um, and, uh, again, for me, that was kind of counterintuitive and it took me a long time to figure that out. But once I figured it out, it's like, oh my gosh, of course. And so my current book or the latest book called the salmon way it is all about people. It's, it's, it's about salmon, um, for sure, but it's about salmon as told through the people who salmon are most important to, who live a very deep, rich way of life through this fish, um, 
And so for me, that that book actually was quite a departure from a lot of my earlier work. My earlier work was, um, and I still I will still do it. Um, it. You know, it was natural history, ecosystems, making those connections for people and why they matter, uh, and why they matter for people, not just for you know wildlife. But but now you know you know tell these stories more through people. And when I get up and I give my public presentations, my speaking presentations. And I'm telling the story of salmon through other people's stories. I mean, people are in tears and it's usually tears of joy. You know, it's, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, you know, hearing that story about, about the grandmother teaching her grandkids about salmon and how to harvest them with respect and how to smoke them in ways that their ancestors have been doing for 10,000 years. It's, it's, it's just so touched my heart. Whereas if I just got up and told about the natural history of salmon and their life cycle, you know, that'd be, it'd be interesting, right? But I don't think it would really get us in the heart. And, and if we're not reaching people's hearts, we're never, ever going to reach their minds and, and change their minds and, and really motivate them. I mean, human beings, we are, we are emotional things. We, I think we like to think that we're rational beings, um, but we're really not. I mean, we're, <laughs> we're, we are at heart very, it's what makes us human, right? Like we have feelings, we have emotions, we're moved by those things. Can we be moved by facts? Yeah, probably. But I, facts are important. Don't get me wrong. They definitely matter. But if you just get up there and tell people a bunch of facts, there's, I I don't think that's going to motivate people to do much uh, or not as many people as we need, let's say, you know, to do these things. So yeah, to me, compelling stories are told through people's lives uh, in in a way in a way that we can put ourselves in their shoes, and 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 it's as if we are right there with them, you know, catching the salmon or watching those salmon or watching those bears or, um, you know, giving thanks and giving reverence, you know, to to the land and to the rivers, you know, that support people. Um, uh, to me, that's a compelling story. And and I, I look back now, I read a lot of nonfiction. I don't read a lot of fiction. But all the nonfiction I'm reading and the books that really stick in my head, the ones that to me are classics, they're all about nature, but they're all told uh, through somebody's life's or, uh, life or lives. Um, so to me, that's yeah. what makes a compelling story. And also, again, just paint a picture, whether it's through... And in my case, it's it's a combination of photos and words. But paint a picture and make me feel that I'm there. Make me feel how cold that water is or how hot that desert is or how big that elephant is. or something. Make me feel something. Because, again, if I don't feel something, I'm not going to be moved to do much of anything. So I think you just I think you just partially answered my next question because <laughs> it was going to be along the lines of, you know, for for photographers that aren't necessarily interested in breaking into conservation photography, what are some things that people could do to improve uh, their craft by employing some of the things that you do in conservation photography? Mm. Make yeah. me feel obviously being one of them, right? Oh, oh, definitely. And, you know, I, I always say, again, however it is you're using for your photography, and that's totally personal and up to you, photograph what you are most passionate about. I've, I've, I've had to go out and photograph things I wasn't very passionate about. And it, and it showed, it showed in the work. It's hard. (laughs) It's really hard, right? Sometimes, I mean, sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm not passionate about that, but I get out there and maybe I get into it and I spend enough time like, oh, okay. Oh, wow. This is really cool. And then I get drawn in more. Now I am passionate about it. But 
if that doesn't happen, again, if I'm not passionate about it, again, it shows in the work. It, it just shows there's not much there. So, you know, what, what makes you come alive? You know, what do you get excited about? And go out there and photograph that because, because it's going to show in your work. It's going to come through. And because you love it, you're passionate about it, you're going to spend a lot of time out there. And to me, that's what makes great photographs is really slowing down, spending time. You're not out there just snapping away at the first thing that kind of piques your interest and then the next shiny thing comes along and you start snapping away. It's slowing down. It's because when we slow down and we really focus, focus our minds, that's when you really start noticing things that maybe you overlooked when you were kind of running around, you know, snapping away at whatever, you know, piques your interest for a short period of time. So passion, slow down and, and get out there and spend a lot of time with it. And I don't mean like maybe hours and hours at one time and then you're done. It's like, go back, go back and back and back, go back the next day, go back the next season um, because things are always changing. Right. And, and you're just going to notice, you're going to notice more and more. Um, and when you notice more and you make photographs um, of things that you never even noticed or you didn't see, now you're going to come back with images that probably most people have never seen and never will see. Um, and that's what gets our attention too, um, like it or not, going back to how we started this conversation, when we see the same things over and over again, it ceases to get our attention and for better or worse. But what gets our attention these days in a sea, again, billions and billions of images probably uploaded every day now. Um, what gets our attention, for better or worse, are things we really haven't seen before. And I don't necessarily mean like, say, a species we've never seen, like something rare that nobody's photographed. But, you know, make me see an American robin, the most common bird in all of North America. If you can make me pause on a photograph of an American robin, you've done your job. Like suddenly you're making me see it in a way I've never seen it before. Like I've seen the species, I see it every day, but wow. You know, you, I've never seen that, whether it's that behavior, or the angle or whatever it is, you know, something, if you can make me pause, then you've got my attention. And, and I think really that's the challenge for all photographers. Um, if, if, what, if what it is we're trying to do is share our work with others, um, we're trying to get their attention. Just if, even if it's just for a split second, you're like, whoa, 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 what, what's that? You know, then, then you've done your job for sure. All right, well, I know you already mentioned your two books, and we will be sure to put a link to both of those in the show notes for people who are interested in picking up a copy for themselves or maybe buying it as a gift for friends or family. My last question is, who do you recommend for the podcast? Who inspires you? Oh, wow. Um, I could go down my list of heroes for sure, <laughs> you know, who are all... Um... I've been doing this much longer than I have. Uh, so for about eight years, I wrote a column for Outdoor Photographer Magazine. Um, and a lot of it was kind of talking about similar themes of what we've touched on here. But I would also feature other photographers and their work and mainly conservation photographers using their work as tools, um, you know, for the betterment of, of, of nature and all of its glory. And I'm trying to think of... Um, uh, the first person I featured was Steve Winter, um, because at the time, his big cat work uh, was was kind of really just coming out then, and he's continued to do that. Um, he's, I just think, an excellent example of someone who's not only out there making very difficult photographs. I mean, most, you know, big cats, 
so hard, so elusive. They're nocturnal. Um, they may see you, but they're not going to let you see them, at least not in person. Very, or it's hard, like really, really hard. And so he was employing camera traps, um, but in like really difficult places, like, you know, in the Himalayas, you know, trying to get snow leopards. And he did. You know, he's just got some amazing images um, in uh, Indonesia where tigers are, you know, there's a handful left there. Uh, I mean, tigers are endangered worldwide, but like he was getting like Sumatran tigers, again, all camera trap stuff. And he would tell me, you know, he told me in the interview, he's like, you know, 95% of the time when I go and back and check those camera traps, there's, I got nothing. <laughs> you know, there's nothing, <laughs> right. on, nothing, nothing. You know, it's like, oh my God, how frustrating. But the images he does get, you know, are, again, they get our attention. So anyway, I, I could go on and on about his work, but yeah, Steve Winter, uh, for sure. James Baylog, you know, uh, uh, Chasing Ice is one of his, you know, better known things, but um, he's done a lot more than that. Um, Art Wolf, uh, always uh, a, a wonderful friend and, and a great mentor. I think maybe some newer or newer folks to me anyway, uh, Britta Jasinski. Uh, she is a German photographer based in the UK. Just do it dynamite work and and very brave and courageous work like she'll go into china you know with either kind of and she just poses as a tourist and she's going into um kind of these hideous circus like you know things that you know they're making tigers you know do whatever they're trying to make tigers do but they're kept in horrible conditions and you know and they're kind of torturing them to make them entertain people, right? Like we don't need wildlife to be doing this and these are endangered species. She'll go in as, you know, just kind of pretend she's a tourist and, you know, she's not supposed to be photographing and they don't want her to, but she'll somehow <laughs> convince them and say, oh, no, no, I'm just taking these photos <laughs> for my kids. See, the, see this picture of my kid? And they can't even speak the same language, right? And somehow she, anyway, she, you know, she'll, she'll go into places like where bears are being like locked in little cages and their, you know, their gallbladders are being milked for, you know, gallbladder, you know, you know, and it's, this is supposed to be medicinal. Again, I, these are just horrible, horrible things happening to wildlife. Right. And she's just doing some really powerful work, but more, most, more importantly than even the work itself goes back to what we've been talking about. She gets that work out there and she, she's partnering with organizations. She's partnering with other photographers. Um, she's come out with, I think, two books now that are, it's a total collaboration. Uh, she and other photographers doing work similar to hers, calling attention to, you know, this huge issue of illegal wildlife trafficking and, and wildlife products and wildlife entertainment and, and, and getting it into the right hands, you know, getting it into, Chinese decision makers or whoever it is, whoever needs to see, you know, U.S. customs officials, like whoever that's confiscating all these. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I go on and on about her work, too. But she's um, she's just, again, dynamite and really using her work in uh, in a great way. I think there's um, uh, I will. There's another photographer. He's not doing conservation work, but just super powerful work, I think, um, from an artistic point of view and kind of a humanitarian point of view with some of his work. Um, but Cole Thompson. Uh, if you've ever, uh, uh, yeah, look him up, um, black and white photographer, um, just really, really powerful. And he's really inspiring. And he speaks a lot to this idea of, of vision, um, which kind of speaks to what I was talking about earlier about passion and photograph what you're passionate about. He really helps people, I think, understand, you know, um, you know, it's, 
again, if you're trying to make powerful work, you need to have not only passion, but a vision. It's like, you know, okay, I, I've got a, I, I'm passionate about this, but kind of what's my vision for a body of work, you know, that could, that could illustrate what it is I'm passionate about. And he's really, really good at getting people to think about, about that. So he'd be, he'd be terrific. Yeah, so we um, had Cole on on episode 178. So if listeners haven't listened to that one yet, I'll put a link to it in the show notes for sure. Oh, great. Yeah, Cole, Cole's great. He's he's a really funny guy too. So he's mm-hmm. very entertaining <laughs> on different, multiple levels. Well, Amy, this has been fantastic. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend time with us today and keep up the great work. I think, I mean, I've, I'm inspired and I know others will be as well. Well, great. And I just want to say, um, if anyone, if you ever want to contact me, um, you know, just to say hi or whatever, uh, best way is to, uh, is to go through my website. Uh, it's just my name, amygulick.com, A-M-Y-G-U-L-I-C-K.com. Uh, and you can reach me there. And I'm always happy to, to reach out and talk with other photographers. Perfect. Well, thank you to Amy for the great conversation. I really appreciate you sharing your journey with us and keep up the great work with the salmon. It's very important and I really love what you're doing. Before we part ways, I wanted to remind listeners that we are working to create a podcast producers page for the show. This is your way to signal to other listeners which episodes are your favorite. If you're interested in learning more, please do reach out. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.